Let's open our Bibles, Luke chapter number 2 this morning. I know you're shocked. Push you over with a feather, amen. Luke chapter number 2. And uh, But it's really less of a surprise, probably to our people, that we are making our way to that passage this morning. We have, over the past few weeks, been preaching on the topic of the Incarnation. And uh, we'll say a word about that to get you caught up here in just a few moments. But let's begin reading Luke chapter number 2. And we'll begin in verse number 1. Luke chapter number 2, verse number 1. The Bible says, And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And this taxing was first made when Cyrenius was governor of Syria. And all went to be taxed, every one into his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea, unto the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. And so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. There were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. Lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. The angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. Ye shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. And it came to pass, as the shepherds were gone away from them into, uh, or as the angels were gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds said one to another, Let us now go even unto Bethlehem and see this thing which is come to pass, which the Lord hath made known unto us. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. When they had seen it, They made known abroad the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all they that heard it wondered at those things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told unto them. Let's pray together. Father, we love you this morning. Thank you for this opportunity to be here. And Lord, thank you for what we're celebrating today, this glorious truth of the incarnation, that you would love us enough that you would come rescue us out of our lost condition, that you'd be willing to come and, and step out of heaven and onto a cross to take our place, that we might know you, Lord, that you'd be willing to become one of the sons of men, that we as the sons of men might become the sons of God. Lord, we're so grateful. And time would fail us, words would fail us, language would fail us to really give to you the praise that you deserve this morning. So let us just simply say, Lord, we love you and we thank you for what you've done and for what we're celebrating today. Lord, I don't know the heart's condition of any person in this room. Only you, Lord, know their heart. And I pray that if there's any that do not know Christ as their Savior, they'd not leave this place seeing Him only as a babe in a manger. But Lord, I pray they'd see Him as a Savior on a cross and as a King coming back. Lord, I pray that they would come to You, believe on You, be born again, that their lives might be transformed, that they might have the joy of the Lord and have a life that's worth living. Father, we love you. Thank you for all you've done and will do. We ask all these things in Christ's name. 
Amen. As we said a moment ago, we have for the month of December been preaching on Sundays exclusively on the topic of the incarnation. Now, that word incarnation is big $10 theologian's word. Uh, but really, the definition of the incarnation or what the incarnation means is, is God coming and dwelling amongst mankind. It's the birth of Jesus Christ. It's what we're really here with uh, on our hearts this morning and celebrating. Uh, the Bible describes the incarnation in Isaiah chapter number 7, verse number 14. This is probably as concise a definition as you can get. It says, Therefore the Lord Himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, the word Emmanuel, it's not just a proper name, but it's a title. It literally means God with us. The incarnation is the reality that God was birthed into this world. He did not uh, begin to exist at that moment, but He was robed in flesh and walked amongst mankind, uh, felt their pain, felt their suffering, and went to the cross of Calvary to die in man's stead. If I was to give you sort of a clinical definition, this is the one I've been sharing with our church. The eternally existent second person, of the triune Godhead indwelt the sinless body prepared for him by the conception of the Holy Spirit in a virgin's womb. He was born in Bethlehem in the land of Israel and lived a perfect sinless life. He is a 100% God as he has always and eternally been. Due to this miraculous entrance into time and humanity, he is also a 100% man. This event and ongoing reality is what constitutes the truth of the Incarnation. You know, on this day, it is so easy, as the song they were singing alluded to, to get distracted by the festivities. And I don't begrudge you the festivities. Man, I think it's a wonderful thing. We got a tree up. If that offends you, come take it down. I'd love for somebody else to do it. Amen? You know, we got gifts up underneath it and uh, more than we deserve and and God's blessed us immensely and my wife went through and the house is decorated and she won't take that down till like March, amen, because she has this weird obsession. She, she's convinced Christmas goes till March, amen. I, I don't know. I think I'm getting conned. Somebody say amen to that. And, uh, you know, I don't begrudge any of that to you, you understand. But I don't want you to miss what this day is really about. It's really about this wonderful, miraculous truth of the Incarnation. And it's so much bigger than a babe in a manger. Uh, One of the things that grieves me is I feel like sometimes we diminish the magnitude of what happened on that day by seeing it merely as a sweet and touching story and not recognizing it for for the immenseness of what it is. You say, preacher, why is the Incarnation important? Well, we shared these three thoughts throughout this series. Number one, the incarnation is a truth of historical fact. Uh, no self-respecting historian could deny the existence of Jesus of Nazareth. Now, they may dispute and debate and argue and fuss and fight about whether he did all the things that the Bible says that he did. I'm convinced because of what he did in my soul that he did what the Scripture says. Uh, but nobody, uh, self-respecting historian, would dispute the reality, the existence, the historicity of the life of the Lord Jesus. And uh, if he is who he says he is, and I have found him to be thus, uh, then the incarnation likewise is a historical fact. 
the truth that God stepped out of glory and into a virgin's womb, into a sinless body prepared for him, was birthed and walked amongst mankind is a truth of historical fact. It's as historical as the Alamo. It's as historical as Waterloo. It's as historical as yesterday. It is a reality that God was incarnate. It's a truth of historical fact. But not only that, the incarnation is a truth of theological force. And you say, preacher, what do you mean by that? Well, I mean, what you believe about the incarnation will inform and affect everything else that you believe about God and about life and about death and about this world. Uh, you cannot divorce your belief about the incarnation from the rest of the body of doctrine or dogma that you adhere to. And how could you believe in the incarnation and it not change everything? Uh, you know, we use this phrase around here sometimes, theological consequence. If I believe A, I must believe B, and then I will believe C. Well, if you believe wrong about the incarnation, man, it's going to mess you up on everything. Because if he wasn't God, he couldn't have done what he said he did. If he wasn't God, then his death would have been tragic but meaningless. If he wasn't God, then he couldn't have rose from the dead on the third day. If he isn't God, he can't save you from your sins. Your uh, faith is in vain. You are dead in your sins. So what you believe about the incarnation is going to change everything else. You can't say, well, I just don't have an opinion about whether it's true or whether it's not. No, we must have an opinion about this truth. It is a truth of theological force. But then I would say this, the incarnation is a truth of practical faith. In other words, it impacts how I walk with God day by day. You say, how is that, preacher? Well, the book of Hebrews says we have not an high priest. It's talking about our relationship with God facilitated through the person of Jesus Christ. We have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin. I couldn't come to God in boldness and in confidence without the truth and reality of the incarnation. So this is not some dusty catechism to be pulled out once a year from uh, theological books. This is a living, breathing truth that informs everything about the life of the believer. And so we've devoted some time to looking at this truth and what it means and how it's presented in the Bible. And it is presented in several different ways, none of them disconsonant with one another. But let me explain. Here's what I mean. We looked first off in Genesis 3.15, the very first time the incarnation is prophesied, that the seed of the woman would bruise the head of the serpent. And there the incarnation is viewed as a solution. So preacher, a solution to what? A solution to man's fall. Man had fell into sin. How was he going to get out of it? Well, God was going to come rescue him out of it. A solution to man's foe. He now had an adversary, the devil. How could he defeat him? Couldn't defeat him in the garden. How was he going to defeat him? Well, God was going to come defeat that foe for us. And then uh, a solution for man's forgiveness. In other words, how could man be pardoned of his sins? Well, all that's wrapped up in that truth of the incarnation. We then went to 1 Timothy 3.16. Without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. And Paul's writing to Timothy, and he's teaching him how he ought to behave in the house of God, how he ought to keep the house of God in order. And then uh, he points to Jesus. He says, you want to know what good behavior looks like? Look to the Lord Jesus Christ. God was manifest in the flesh. So we considered the incarnation as a demonstration of what righteousness is. You want to know what righteousness looks like? Look at the Lord Jesus Christ. John chapter number 1, we're told that the Word, uh, which was in the beginning, which was with God and was God, that that same Word was made flesh and dwelt amongst us. 
We're told in verse 18 of that chapter that no man hath seen God at any time, but the only begotten Son which is in the bosom of the Father hath declared Him. And in John 1, the incarnation is viewed as a revelation. Uh, We want to know what God looks like? We can look at the Lord Jesus Christ. He said that explicitly so to Philip. Philip said, show us the Father and it sufficeth us. And Jesus looked at Philip and said, have I been so long time with you, Philip, and you've not known me? If you've seen me, he said, you've seen the Father. So Christ revealed God to us. Galatians chapter number 4 describes the Lord Jesus Christ as coming and delivering those that were under the yoke and bondage of the law. It says that God, when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth His Son made of a woman, made under the law to redeem them that were under the law. And there it's viewed as a liberation. He sets men free from that. In Isaiah 9, last Sunday morning, we looked at that wonderful Christmas passage that describes how that a son would be, a child would be born and a son would be given and the government would be upon his shoulders. How that his name would be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And all that is set against the backdrop of Israel's Messiah and Deliverer coming to them. Man, I'm glad one day he ain't coming back as a baby in a manger. He's coming back as a conquering king. Revelation 19 labels him the king of kings and lord of lords. And so we looked at the incarnation as a coronation. The king of glory entering in to his domain. Last Sunday night we looked at Hebrews chapter number 2 and how that uh, the Lord Jesus Christ took upon him flesh and blood uh, and uh, through death defeated him that had the power over death, that is the devil, uh, that he might free us who were in bondage our whole lifetime, subject to fear and bondage, uh, subject to fear of death. How that it is a ministration. He as our high priest was made perfect, uh, the captain of our salvation through the sufferings that he experienced. Man, it's, it's hard to overstate how much the incarnation did for you and me. Everything that is superlative to the state of a believer in the New Testament versus the Old Testament, we have because of the incarnation and the death of Jesus Christ. It is a New Testament. And listen, where there's no death of the testator, the testament is of no force. There couldn't have been a death of the testator had he not first been incarnate. Everything you've got about New Testament Christianity, you got because of the incarnation. As we approach Luke chapter number 2 this morning, there is a phrase that arrested my attention later on in the book of Luke that the Lord Jesus uses about the incarnation. He's talking to Israel. And he's talking about the tragedy. He's speaking sort of figuratively to the nation. And he's talking about the tragedy of their rejection of him. And he says that all sorts of terrible, awful things would befall them as a nation, which, by the way, has indeed happened, because they had rejected the Messiah. And this is how he described their rejection of him. He says in Luke 19.44, Thou knewest not the time of thy visitation. And in that interesting language, Knewest not the time of thy visitation. One of my favorite passages in the Old Testament is in Genesis chapter 18 when God comes by Abraham's tent. And I love it because it's such a tender scene. It's like God, you know, the Bible tells us that Abraham was the friend of God. It's like God just came by to visit with his friend. And he comes to Abraham's tent. Abraham fixes him supper. I'm sure cornbread was present. Amen. I can't prove that, but we'll get to heaven. You'll know that I'm right. And they sit around and they just, they enjoy that visit together. You know, a very similar thing happened when God was robed in flesh. He came that He might visit mankind and redeem them 
from their sins. It was indeed a visit, for he's back in glory right now. One day he's coming back to set up shop. Somebody say amen. But for that brief span of time, you think about all of the long, lonely years that man has walked this earth. And for 33 of them, God came and visited mankind and showed righteousness and secured salvation. I want to preach to you on this thought this morning. The incarnation viewed as a visitation. And when we come to Luke chapter number 2, it is keenly apparent to us all that went into this crucial moment in human history. It used to be before man's pride exalted him to a place of lunacy that we even reckoned our time relative to this moment in human history. We recognize the significance of this season and span of time of 33 years and saw it as being the hinge upon which uh, human stories turn. And when we come to this passage of Scripture, we find that there are three scenes that are set before us. Three things that, I, and I don't like to liken the Bible to movies, but but if we were seeing a play, if we were reading, a, you know, a typical literary work, we would call this three chapters or three scenes, three images that are set before us. First, we find in uh, verse 1 to verse number 6, sort of a global scene of what God was doing across the world in preparation of this visit. And then we see in verse 7, the scene there in the manger, in the stable, in Bethlehem, and we see the condescension of this visit. And finally, we go to the meadow, and we see the shepherds out in the field, and the glorious announcement from heaven, we see the annunciation of this visit. What can we learn from these three scenes that are set before us? Think with me first off about that first scene. It's fascinating to me the way this uh, chapter begins. You know, it reminds me when the Bible describes the birth of John the Baptist, how it begins by describing all the world leaders. It begins with the Caesar that was on the throne and then begins to work its way down through the principalities and down through the ranks until the Bible says there was a man sent from God whose name was John. And in similar fashion, it's almost like God pulls the telescope out and shows us the magnitude of what he was doing in the world, it begins by describing, humanly speaking, the most powerful man living. Verse number one says this, it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus. If you're not a uh, student of history, if you don't love history like I do, that name may not bear much significance. But if you understood the world at this season and at this moment, the Roman Empire had been for a hundred or so years and would continue on for several hundred years, about 400 years, to be the leading world power. Their dominion was unchallenged in many ways. And at this time, they are practically at the very height of. The name Caesar Augustus is pregnant with power and with significance and with authority. And the Bible says there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus. What was his decree? What do you think the government would do if they had unlimited power? That all the world should be taxed. And this taxing was first made when Serenius was governor of Syria of that particular more local region. And the Bible says this, and all went to be taxed, every one into his own city. I take great comfort from these verses. You say, preacher, why is that comforting? Well, for two reasons. Number one, I find that the first time in human history that uh, mankind was taxed, God showed up to rescue him from it. Somebody say amen to that. 
This whole auditing thing didn't begin, uh, you know, in the past hundred years. It's been going on a lot longer than that. But there's another truth that is sort of of hovering in the background. You see, uh, whenever Caesar set in his mind to create this great taxation, it was a necessary thing, at least in their Roman minds, for the expansion of their uh, empire. It was something that seemed to be practicable in some ways and maybe could benefit the Roman Empire. But you and I know there's another reason that this happened. You see, Caesar thought that he was doing it for Rome. But in fact, there was a God in heaven whose authority far outstripped that of Caesar Augustus, who was setting things in motion to pave the way to bring a little family uh, from Nazareth down to Bethlehem Ephrata, that the Scriptures might be fulfilled concerning where the Lord would be born. You see, here's what I read in these first three verses. In this, I see God's power is displayed. Can I comfort you a little bit? You probably need a little comfort on this Christmas morning. Can I comfort you a little bit? All those people who look like they're in charge ain't who's in charge. Uh, There's people above them that are in charge. (laughs) The people you think's running things ain't running things. There's people behind them, and then there's people above them, and then there's people above them. uh, and, And they seem to be running things. But can I go even a step further? Even they ain't running things. At the end of the day, there's a sovereign God that sits on the circle of the earth that rules and reigns over the affairs of men. And here in this passage, it is keenly, starkly set in relief that our God is the one that wields and moves thrones and kingdoms, dominions and nations. And when God saw fit to bring His Son into this world, to robe Him in flesh, knowing what the Bible had said, He did not take the easy path, but rather exerted His celestial authority in setting in order a series of events that would bring them to the city of Bethlehem. Here in this passage, we just have a gentle reminder of who's in control. I don't know about you, man, but sometimes I need to be reminded he's in control. Sometimes, man, I get to thinking the government's in control. Sometimes I get to thinking the enemies are in control. Sometimes I get to thinking that nobody's in control. But at the end of the day, man, I'm glad that God's in control. In this passage, God's power is displayed. But notice verse 4, the Bible says this, Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth, into Judea. Now, Nazareth was where Joseph and Mary lived. It would be where the Lord Jesus would be raised in, also in, in keeping with Bible prophecy. But because of this taxation, they, they came up out of the city of Nazareth into Judea, under the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he, Joseph, was of the house and lineage of David, to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. In this first scene, I see that God's power is displayed. But number two, I see that God's prophecies are fulfilled. As we've already alluded to, this scene in Bethlehem was no happenstance. It was no accident. It was not the product of government bureaucracy or human incompetency. But rather, it was the product of God's perfect word. The Bible says in Micah chapter 5, verse 2, about this little city, Thou Bethlehem Ephrata, though thou be little among the households of Judah, yet out of thee shall come forth unto me, shall he come forth unto me, that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from old and from everlasting. All this was done in fulfillment of the Word of God. And in fact, not just the scene of this birth, but the entire story and the entire reality 
of this incarnation. We read a verse at the opening of our service out of Isaiah chapter number 7, verse number 14, about uh, the Lord being born, being called Emmanuel. And this was a prophecy. Some uh, liberal historians and liberal theologians have tried to ascribe it to a human individual. The problem is this. Ain't no human ever fulfilled the rest of that prophecy. Ain't no human ever been God with us. Ain't no human uh, ever fulfilled what's said about Emmanuel in chapter 8 and what's said obviously about the same individual in chapter number 9 about him having the government upon us. Nobody else has fulfilled that. But we don't have to go far. We can go to Matthew chapter 1 and find that in fact that was a prophecy that was fulfilled by the birth of our Lord. The Bible says in verse number 20, while Joseph, while he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. She shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Now all this was done, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. The incarnation was the touchstone of the fulfillment of all Bible prophecies surrounding the life of the Lord Jesus. You say, preacher, was it the only prophecy? No, there's plenty of prophecies about the Lord Jesus that He fulfilled throughout His earthly ministry. The Bible uh, makes this statement, Christ speaking to the Pharisees, He said, search the Scriptures, for in them, uh, in them you think you have eternal life, and they are they which testify of Me. We're told prophetically about the Lord that uh, in Hebrews uh, chapter number 10 and also back in the book of Psalms, Lo, I come in the volume of the book. It is written of me to do thy will, O God. And listen, all through the Bible there are prophecies about the Lord Jesus. Hey, if we're going to have church on Christmas, let's have church on Christmas. All through the Bible there are prophecies about the Lord Jesus. But here the incarnation is the touchstone of the fulfillment of all of the rest of them. You say, preacher, what about those of His second coming? Well, His second coming would not have been possible without His first coming. Everything that is going to take place in His second coming was prepared for and predicated on His first coming. So when I read this, I'm struck by this truth that what God says will happen is exactly what happens. But then I want you to notice verse 6. The Bible says this, and so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. Now, this seems like a rather mundane verse, sort of what we would call boilerplate, just sort of part of the narrative that must be told if the story is to have any uh, any coherency. But in it, we have some things that are hinted at. And I love God's sense of humor. I, I don't know, maybe this is pride. I guess we all think God's sense of humor is like our sense of humor. But but I, I think in some ways that God has a little bit of a dry and sarcastic sense of humor. Uh, notice how it says this, and so it was. What a simple phrase that is, but think about all that went into that, so it was. The hearts of emperors had to be moved. The entire bureaucratic monster of the Roman state had to be set in motion. Word had to be given. And we could go even prior to that. The entire Roman world was constructed that it might prepare and pave the way for this very moment. I mean, listen, the the, the road systems that were built, the, the economic and military and political stability that had been provided, all that was leading up to this very moment. And I love the way that God says it, so it was. Like it's no big deal. Like it's just a throwaway statement. Uh, but I guess this, that a God that could create all things really don't have to put forth much effort to set all those things in motion. 
And the way it says it, so it was that while we were there, the, while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. Now, here's what obviously Luke means, that she came to the point of having her child. She was at full term, and, and she was, was having her child. Her child would be born there. But, you know, it's almost hinted at, even behind this, because we know there's a sovereign God reigning over this moment. We understand that it's not just her days that were delivered, but it's the days that were accomplished. In other words, God had orchestrated all of these things for this very Moment. Let me say it this way. In this passage, God's providence is portrayed. We understand that none of this happened by happenstance. None of this happened by accident. It all was leading up to this very moment. And, and, and with, 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 with painstaking exactitude, God brought them to this moment in time. Can I just stop and say this to you this morning? You know God does the same thing in your life and mine. There's a lot of things. Isn't it funny? We want to blame the good things on luck and the bad things on God. But the truth of the matter is, every single thing that transpires in your life, even things you can't understand and things you might shudder to ascribe to God, they all are leading to a place of God's working in your life. You see, you think you came here because family invited you or because we were having church when other churches weren't. Or you think you came here because it's your home church and that's where you're going to be and you were in town and you were expected. But the reality is God was ordering and setting in order a series of events to bring you to this moment and this time. Nothing is by accident. It's why we ought to, every time we come to church, man, we ought to come in anticipation. Because ain't none of us there by accident. Uh, There's too many things could have gone wrong for us to get here by accident. We're here by providence, and providence always has a purpose. When we read this passage, it makes me think of a verse we quoted earlier out of Galatians 4. Describes the incarnation. Listen to the phrase it uses. It says, when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth His Son made of a woman made under the law. In other words, when the time was appropriate, when the time was right. We worry about God's technique. What we really ought to be focusing on is getting in line with God's timing. We sit around scrutinizing, criticizing, and analyzing whether God has the technical ability to do the things in our life that we need done, when rather we ought to look at it and say, you know, maybe it's not that God's not able, maybe it's that God's not ready yet. God's working in your life and mine. But we've got to be patient and willing to give him the time for his providence to work things out in perfection. Ain't nothing worse than a half-done cake. Some of us, that's why our life's a mess. It ain't nothing but a half-done cake. We've done pulled it out of the oven before we let God continue working in our life. We need to be patient in waiting on his timing. So in this first scene, I see the preparation of this visit. God is setting all sorts of things in order for this moment in human history. But then when we come to verse number 7, we could really say that this is the crucial moment of this story. It it almost sounds too simple, doesn't it? It's just one verse, and this is what it says. She brought forth her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the end. I've heard all sorts of commentary about this verse and read all sorts of commentary. I've heard people wax eloquent and, 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 and illuminated about the swaddling clothes, the significance of them, what shepherds would do with a lamb that maybe was, what was a newborn and all sorts of things. I've heard people dispute and, and argue about whether, you know, what the word manger means, if it was the entire stable, if it was a stone basin, if it was a feeding trough. But really a lot of the reason people focus on those things is not a lot is said in that verse. I mean, it's just sort of a 
a plain, simple statement. Yeah, God was born. God was born. And, you know, I think in the simplicity of that statement, we have even a profound truth that's given. Let me use this phrase. Here in verse 7, we see the condescension of this visit. Some of y'all have family in town from, from out of town, and that's always an interesting dynamic, isn't it? What's funny to me is, is uh, you know, we all visit with family at Christmas time that we all live in the same town as, that we only see once a year. Isn't that funny? Wouldn't you think if we liked each other, we'd hang out year-round? I'm getting ready to cause some, some, some family issues, all right? We're going to find out how much Christmas cheer you got after I'm done, amen? But but it's always a, a strange, it's, it's like high school reunions, the same thing. Like, if I like these people, I'd hang out with them all the time. We live in the same town, you know. And, and it's it's always interesting to me to think about, you know, at Christmas time, people get together, and, and oftentimes we just had, in fact, some dear friends visit with us, used to be church members, and, and, and there's great anticipation around all these visits. I remember being a child, no doubt you remember the same thing, and waiting for family to arrive. My boys have been doing it all week when people would come over. They're just brimming with anticipation. They're vibrating with excitement. They're always looking at everything. It don't matter. Somebody hits their foot, that was a knock at the door. I think they're here. I mean, just utter, unmitigated, unbridled enthusiasm, excitement, anticipation. Now, wouldn't you think that when God entered this world, it would be with much fanfare? Wouldn't you think it would be a spectacular sight to behold? But in fact, except for the noise that heaven made, it really sort of passed without event. Same thing sort of happens, by the way, around the crucifixion. We have a disproportionate perspective on it that's sort of centered around Bible Christianity. I don't think that's wrong, but we miss the fact that for most people that were in Jerusalem that week of the Passover, they didn't even know there had been a crucifixion. They didn't even know anything significant had happened in the same way when we come to this passage, I think the simplicity of it denotes the fact that this was an act of great condescension. God didn't come with great fanfare because that wasn't what the incarnation was about. Rather, it was not about exaltation, not not initially, but it was about condescension. In this simple verse, we have three things denoted. Number one, I want you to notice the humanity of the Savior is on display. The Bible says this, she brought forth her firstborn son. What a simple phrase that is. She brought forth her... It doesn't say she birthed God into the world. It doesn't say God was robed in flesh or manifest in flesh. Elsewhere, the Bible will use that language. But here it just says she brought forth her first... It doesn't even say she, she brought forth Jesus. It just says her firstborn son. You say, preacher, why is that? Well, because for all that he was God, and he was and is God, I think the Bible's trying to highlight the fact that when he was birthed into this world, though there were supernatural elements to his conception, that that birth was in many ways like any other birth. No doubt accompanied with pain, no doubt accompanied with discomfort, no doubt accompanied with fear and anxiety and all the things that sort of accompany that moment in a young couple's life. This child was born into this world just like you were and just like I was. I love that, man. He was born just like us because he'd die like no man ever had died. He was born just like us and, and, and suffered what we suffer and feels what we feel and experience what we experience. He, he did not take upon him some sort of hybrid or pseudo-humanity. He truly in sincerity knew what it was to be human. 
to this very day still does. Hebrews 2.14 says it this way, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same. He experienced what you experience that you might experience all that he could experience. I see the humanity of the Savior. Then I note the humility of the Savior. The Bible says this, She brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger. Wonder how often a man ever gets to do a favor for God. We don't know much about this moment in, in human history, but there's some things we can assume. We can assume that Mary had at least the strength to be able to do all of the things that were typical when a Hebrew child was born. They would be taken and washed, salt rubbed upon them to keep away disease and, and various things. The book of Ezekiel describes sort of this process of, of, of what that would be like and, and then taken. And I know there may be some similarities to what shepherds did with swaddling clothes and lambs and uh, you know, we can, I, I guess, just agree on that and get past it because there ain't no sense to argue about it. But it was a typical thing for a newborn child to be taken and swaddled then as it is now. And Mary evidently had the strength to do all of these things. And you say, preacher, what did she do? She picked God up, washed him off. She picked God up and rubbed salt over that new infant body. She picked God up, wrapped him in swaddling clothes. She picked God up and then gingerly laid him down in a manger. We're talking about the God of creation, you understand. We're talking about the God of glory. We're talking about the God whom uh, the, the Bible describes as men falling as dead before him when they are in his presence. I mean, you understand the God we're talking about, right? I mean, we're talking about the God that stopped the sun in its course. We're talking about the God that parted the Red Sea. We're talking about God that opened the earth up to swallow Korah and his fellow rebels. We're talking about the God that created everything from nothing. And here he's having to be picked up and swaddled like a little infant child and laid in a manger. Here's what's denoted is the humility of the Savior. Think about what it takes. I'm somebody that don't like, if there's something I can do for myself, I don't want other people doing it for me. Are you like that? Anybody like that? I don't like things being done for me that I can do for myself, unless it's my wife doing it, and then I'll ask her to do anything, go get me a cup of this, go get me that, and this and that. But I, but that's why I married her, amen, and, and because uh, I love her too. And, and the... <laughs> I typically don't like things being done for me. If I can, could you imagine what it was like for God to be willing to do that? Could you imagine the humility it must have taken for God to be willing to allow Mary to do that very thing? What humility. The Bible describes it this way in Philippians chapter number 2, verse number 5 says, Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. There was no problem with him being equal with God. He was God. He is God. But he made himself of no reputation. He took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. Being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Here in this passage, we see the humility of the Savior. But then notice this final phrase. Why did all this transpire in this way? It says, she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger. Why? Why did it happen in this unusual way? Well, here's why. Because there was no room for them in the end. Most popular man in a Christmas place that's not found anywhere in the Bible is the innkeeper. Uh, the Bible never says there was an innkeeper. We don't know. Could have been a verbo. Who knows? They might have showed up, punched the code in, got the little key. 
We assume there was an innkeeper. We assume there must have been someone whenever they showed up that said, I'm sorry, there is simply no room for you in this place. And I think we've sometimes vilified that guy. We don't know who he was, what his name was, or what his motive was. We assume it's simply a man that was doing his job and informing just another traveler that unfortunately they were occupied. But in this phrase, we find this truth in germ form. We find the hostility towards the Savior. Uh, let's say it this way. We find that in I'll never get that said. It was an inhospitable place. As he shows up to this place, this family does. It's not necessarily open animosity. It's just simply, I'm sorry, we have no room for you. Boy, if there was ever anything that characterized the attitude of the world towards God. There are people at open war with God. I'm aware of that. There are people that hate Him and and hate you because you know Him. And I understand all that. But you know, that's not the vast majority of people. Most people that you talk to, if you say, are you a Christian? They'll say, well, no, I've, I've just never had time for all that church stuff. You'll say, well, if you died right now, do you know where you would go? Have you ever thought about it? No, I don't really have time to focus on all that. Most people, if you'd say, do you believe in the Lord? Have you received him? It's, I don't know if I have room for all that in my life. You see, most people aren't in open opposition, but they're inhospitable towards him. They give the same answer that this inn must have given when they arrived there. I'm sorry, we just have no room for you. We find this same truth characterized in John chapter number 1, verse number 10, says this about the incarnation. He was in the world. And the world was made by him. And the world knew him not. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. This is speaking, of course, in a larger sense of Israel's rejection of their Messiah. But here on this night in Bethlehem, we find in germ form, this same truth communicated that at the end of the day, the world just simply had no room and had no place for God when he showed up. Again, we spend a lot of energy making preparation for people to come over and to be at our house. And I just wonder if we have given the same attention to our life concerning the Lord. Have we given Him the same reverence? Have we given Him the same respect? If you're here today and you're lost without Christ, I would ask you this question. No doubt you've made preparation for lots of things in your life. You might have a 401k that you're paying into. You might have a, a, a health insurance plan that you've purchased. You might have, especially this time of year, a gym membership that you are at least planning on going to and using. All these things you've given attention to, have you given attention to your eternal soul? Do you know where you're going to go when you die? I don't know how we forgot this as a society, but sooner or later, we're all going to die. You're going to have to deal with that. Sooner or later, you're going to die. We were driving to church this morning, me and my wife were. I saw this thing on Facebook, so it must be true, that um, somebody was saying it'll be 11 years before it's Christmas on Sunday again. I, I, you'd think it'd be seven. Maybe a leap year is going to mess it up. I don't know. Smarter people than me can figure that out and then post it on Facebook, and then I'll see it and know it's true. And... Um, we were talking about that on the way in. And I looked at her. I said, you know, the next time we do this on a Sunday, our oldest, he's going to be 20 years old. And the next time we do this on a Sunday, our youngest, he's, he's going to be 15. I said, the next time we do this, we're going to be 46. <laughs> Talk about getting, getting depressed on the way to church, you know. We just came to church, showed up, just feeling old. Amen. And... uh 
We just don't think about it very often. Sooner or later, we're all going to get old. Sooner or later, we're all going to die. What have you prepared for while neglecting that truth and reality? Just no room. I'm sorry, God. There's just no room. I'm sorry. I have no time. I'm not openly, you know, hostile towards you. I have no animosity towards God. It's just me and God are going different directions and, and I don't have time for it. By the way, if you're not saved, you and God are going different directions. Uh, you don't want to be going a different direction from God. In this passage, I see the condescension of this visit. And finally, and I'm done, I won't get everything preached I want to preach this morning, but I want you to think with me for just a moment about the enunciation of this visit. There was a great announcement made from heaven to a group of men that were out merely doing their job uh, in the dark uh, field, watching over their flock by night, probably bored, sitting around, listening to the sheep graze and bleat, maybe watching some of them sleep. And all of a sudden, the Bible describes how that this angelic host bursts forth upon the sky and begins to declare to them this wonderful truth of the Incarnation. It says in verse number 9, Lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. This shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill towards men. So we've gone from this sort of global scene of looking at what God is doing on a global scale to standing in the stable and beholding at the manger and seeing the birth of the Savior. And finally, we see this scene in the field where this announcement is made. What could we notice about this? Notice, number one, the recipients of this announcement. It's always been wonderful to me that whenever God was incarnated, that truth and that reality was not first heard in Caesar's palace in Rome nor in Herod's palace in Israel. It was not heard amongst the great halls of scholars and of learned and aged men. It was not uh, communicated amongst uh, men of great wealth and prosperity and power and prominence, but rather that of all the places that this angelic choir could have appeared, it chose to appear that night to these shepherds in a field. Entire sermons have been preached, and I've preached entire sermons on these men. But can I just notice one simple truth? I'm glad God didn't forget about a bunch of simple, obscure, nothing nobodies out in a dark field just simply doing their job and waiting the night away in boredom. What a beautiful picture for what the incarnation is all about. I Listen, He didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. He came to seek and to save that which was lost, He didn't come that He might lay Himself up in luxury and have all of the great leaders of the world come and bow the knee. There's coming the day they'll all bow the knee. But when He came in His first coming, it was that He might redeem man from His lost sinful condition. And as such, He didn't go to palaces, but rather He went to the lowest of low places. He went and He healed lepers and and broken people and people that were insignificant and people that couldn't do anything for Him in return. He went and ministered to worthless people. Preacher, why is that important? Because I was a worthless person. God didn't save me because He was getting something good out of the deal. It cost Him far more than it ever got Him. 
I'm glad that he came to these insignificant men. And then notice with me the contents of this announcement. Again, entire series could be preached. I'll try my best not to do that this morning. But in this message that is given here, notice there's three things that are sort of, of on display here. Notice in verse number 10, the angel said this, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. In this, we find God's desire towards mankind. How does God feel about man? A lot of uh, this world has funny ideas about God's perspective and God's temperament. And there is this prevailing opinion that God is sitting up in heaven just mad that He's God and mad that you're mankind. Can I tell you this? Though the Bible is clear that He's angry with the wicked every day, God is grieved by wickedness, sin, injustice, and iniquity. Nonetheless, God has a heart for mankind. Probably the most famous passage in the Word of God uh, categorizes this and galvanizes it on the human mind. God so loved the world. And when He showed up and the angel showed up to give this message, He did not proclaim fear, but He said, Fear not. He did not say, I've arrived to give you desperate and terrible news. But He said this, I bring you good tidings of great joy. And He did not arrive merely to declare these good tidings to a select few that have been on good behavior, but rather which shall be to all people. Man, I'm glad of that. I'm one of those all people. One of those all people. I had no business getting in, but through His grace, I'm included in those all people. We see God's desire towards mankind. We see God's deliverance for mankind in verse 11. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. In other words, when God sought to walk and robe Himself in flesh and walk amongst mankind, what did He come as? He didn't come as a banker. He didn't come as an organizer. He sure enough didn't come as a politician. What did he come as? He came as a savior. Savior. We, we know relatively little of the earthly uh, responsibilities of our Lord in the sense of his job. And, and uh, we understand the Bible describes him as being a carpenter, but very little focus is given to that aspect of his life. What does the Bible focus on? Well, it focuses on him as the Messiah and as the Savior and, and in what he did for humanity and mankind. Why? Because the preeminent office and function and role of him was as Savior. In other words, we're told here what God's plan is. Not that He's going to show up and ask man to be on his best behavior, but rather that He would send a Savior which would die in the place of man and pay their price. And then we see God's design for mankind. Verse 13 says this, Suddenly there was with the, the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying this, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. Now, the resources would be supplied and the events set in motion for these things in His first coming, but they would not be brought to fruition. And to this day, though there is glory to God in the highest, sadly, there's still not peace on earth and goodwill towards men. But Here we have, again in germ form, God's design for mankind. What's His goal? What's His plan? Well, that all the heavens might praise Him and that all the earth might worship Him. The all-millennialists believe this will be secured and achieved through good works and evangelism. And the only problem is I know too much Bible to believe that. My Bible tells me that's not the course that leads to this place. It does not come through a conquering church. It comes through a conquering king. Amen. 
comes through a raptured church and then a returning church with the returning king. But it, it comes through him setting things in order and establishing it. But it reminds me of this. God's ultimate plan for humanity, and I'm by no means universalist. If you reject Christ, you'll die in your sins and you'll go to hell. But God's plan for humanity is not annihilation. Rather, it's redemption and glorification. I see God's design for mankind. Finally, and I want you to notice, if I keep saying finally, you'll be patient with me. But this is my final finally, amen? Well, there might be some other finalies for the sub, but those aren't really finalies. They're sub-finalies, amen? So uh, my main finally is this. I want you to notice the effects of this announcement. What did this announcement do? What are the shock waves it caused through humanity? Well, notice three things happened. Verse 15 says this. Came to pass as the angels were gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds said one to another, Let us now go even unto Bethlehem and see this thing which has come to pass, which the Lord hath made known unto us. That's a pretty, pretty reasonable thing to do. They said, we've been told this, now let's go see it. And the Bible says in verse 16, they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. I said, preacher, of course that's what happened. I've heard it my whole life. But did it dawn on you that because of this announcement, the Savior was found? These men that could have never found him otherwise, because somebody told him where he was at, who he was, and how they could get to him. They came and they found him. What a wonderful truth. You know, that's how I found him. Somebody told me who he was, where he was, how I could get to him. Somebody told me I was a lost sinner, alienated, separated from God, couldn't get there through my own strength or ability, but told me that God had in fact been robed in flesh, walked amongst men, walked up Calvary's hill, climbed on the cross, took my place, died for my sins in my place, in my stead, as my substitute, risen the third day with healing in His wings, the songwriter says. Risen the third day, powerful, conquering over death, and able to save And if I'd simply come to him in the simplicity of faith and ask him to save me, confess myself a sinner, ask him to forgive me and save me of my sins, that he would save me. And you know what I found? That whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. How do you know that, preacher? Because I was a whosoever that called upon the name of the Lord and got saved. In other words, because of the incarnation and because of this announcement, there's all of a sudden a new conduit, a new pathway of relationship with God the Savior was found. Notice the second thing happened. Verse 17 says this, When they had seen it, they made known abroad the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all they that heard it wondered at those things which were told them by the shepherds. I see not only that the Savior was found, I see the message was heard. They went and saw firsthand, experienced that, then took that experience and carried it out, and with passion and zeal and sincerity in their hearts, they spread abroad this saying that the Savior was born. What a picture that is of the transformation that God does in your life and in my life. Say, preacher, what does God make a man when he saves him? Well, he makes him a child of God. He makes him a Christian. He makes him someone whose life is and should be consumed with the truth and reality of the gospel and with their relationship with Jesus Christ. I'm going to be honest with you. If you want to be a cosmopolitan, well-rounded individual, you might not ought to get saved. Because if you get saved, I'll tell you what your life's going to be about. It's going to be about Jesus Christ. If you want an eclectic series of interests, I'm sorry. You can still have hobbies. God don't begrudge it to you. 
But none of them hold a candle to this story of what He did in your soul and in your life. I'm not pitying you, you understand, if you get born again. It'll be the greatest thing that'll ever happen to you. But I'm just telling you, when you get saved, here's what happens. All of a sudden, you become a conduit. You become a loudspeaker for this truth that what He did in me, man, He can do in others. I see the message was heard and finally... The Bible says this, all they that heard it, here's what they did. They wondered at those things which were told them by the shepherds. I see that hearts were stirred. This message is supernatural. I don't mean my sermon or the presentation of it. I mean the truth and reality of the incarnation and the gospel of which the incarnation points to. Why did he come? Well, he came that he might die. That he might die in your place and in my place. And this glorious truth that we're celebrating and you're celebrating today. You may say, preacher, I'm not a Christian. I've never believed on the Lord. No, but your entire day, like it or not, is going to be consumed with the celebration of this truth. And, you know, you don't just have to do it merely as a matter of form or function or formality or even family. You can do it because in faith you've known the Lord. You can come to God and be saved and be born again and understand what this is about. I, we, I don't begrudge you the presents and the food and the, and, and the decorations. Man, that's all wonderful. It doesn't bother me. And it don't bother God either. But don't miss what this day is. This day we celebrate this grand, glorious truth that God was manifest in the flesh. We beheld His glory like as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Hey, listen. He came unto His own and His own received Him not. Don't be part of that. Don't be part of that crowd that receives Him not. You say, well, preacher, why would I receive Him? Well, to as many as received Him, to them gave you power to become the sons of God. Even them which believe on His name, which were born, not of, uh, of the will of man nor of the flesh, but of the will of God. You can know God personally as your Savior. Listen, I'm not going to appeal you to, to you to give yourself a Christmas present and come to the Lord. If you reject Christ, you'll die in your sins and go to hell. If that's not enough to motivate you, nothing will. But I will just simply say to you that this day is what it is because we celebrate whether it's born on December 25th, whether calendars even matter. Money don't even matter anymore. What do calendars matter? Amen. Uh, whether any of that matters, we dispute and debate about any of that. It's the truth that He came. And He came that you might know God. What a tragedy it would be that you'd live your whole life and miss out on that truth. Let's bow together this morning as a musician comes to play. The altar's open. Here's what I think would be a good thing. If you're saved and know the Lord, and if you have somebody in your life that you know, uh, you may have seen them in the past week, in the past few days. You may be getting ready to see them later on today or later on this week, but you believe them to be lost. And I know you don't know ultimately, and I don't know ultimately, only they and the Lord knows, but you've seen no evidence of the Lord in their life, or maybe they are open in their rejection of Him. Won't you come down, won't you call their name out to the Lord, ask God to work in their heart and in their life to show them their need of Christ. Father, bless this invitation. May it magnify the Lord Jesus. We ask it in His name.